Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And I am your host, Karen Wickiam, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Well, I've got something a little different for you guys. The next episode, or this episode, was supposed to be about the victims of Dr. Ewan Cameron. However, I just got a date for my sinus slash oral surgery uh, to get done. And that left me with no time to finish or to record or edit it in time for this episode. So what I have decided to do is to post, play this episode for you guys. It's Unit 731, horrible, horrible human experiments that took place in Japan. So this episode was originally done for Patreon in April 2021. So I decided to take it and modify it a bit and play it on here so that you guys have some content for this time around. It's a two-part series, and I'm going to play part one right now. And part two will come out in two weeks. And then we will get back onto our schedule of the Dr. Cameron human experiments. We're going to talk about the victims and the final outcome of uh, what happened. That means there's going to be a couple extra episodes in this season. I hope you guys don't mind, but, you know, things happen. And this will be my last surgery for the rest of my life. Mark my words. (laughs) Anyway, so... I'm going to just lead you in to this episode. It's going to start abruptly, but like I said, I had to modify it for this season. So here you go. Okay, so let, let's just get into this. Unit 731 is, this is a relatively unknown part of history. When people think of World War II, they think of the atrocities in, um, in Germany. In Perpetuated the, by Germany. Yes. They didn't know what was going, I mean, not a lot of people knew what was going on in um, Japan of the 1930s and 40s, where they were basically held to secrecy, and there was no in-between. If you were busted, you were dead, and your family was killed. Like, there was no oopsie. <laughs> no rats allowed. You know, even when you were, um, even when they were training, if they had a scowl or like a, a wince on their face, they would get beaten. Because you should be smiling, because at the time it was an empire. So it was an honor to serve the emperor. So you had to have this smile on your face, or at the very least, uh, not a, a negative look on your face. In 1940, during World War II, approximately 3,000 to 12,000, they're, they're, they're somewhere in between, they're not exactly sure. Chinese, Russians, Koreans, Europeans, and Americans were used for human medical experiments, tortured, and murdered. All of these orders came from one of the worst psychopathic doctors in history. And he was a Japanese doctor known as Ishii Shiro. This atrocity had been largely unknown until the 1990s. And there were no survivors of of this. That's probably why no one knew about it except for the Japanese. (laughs) And the secrecy that people were held to. Right. All participants were sworn to secrecy with the threat of torture and death to the person who spoke and that of their family, which I had just spoken about. Some started to confess the horrors they perpetrated in later on, like the late 80s and 90s, because they just, they couldn't live with themselves anymore. And some took it to their deaths. 
when this first started to be known or coming out and files were um, declassified, there was a lot of, I mean, people were shocked and horrified by what happened. And a museum was actually built in honor of the victims that died and to present that we can't allow this to happen again. So some came forward because they just, they couldn't live with themselves anymore. Uh, Some, like I said, took it to their deaths and most that came forward remained anonymous. So you're going to hear firsthand stories from the people that actually worked at unit 731. Most of them, like I said, are, um, anonymous and I'm going to leave a lot of their stories to the next episode because for flow and it's very disturbing. I'm not keeping anything out. Was there ever like a movie or documentary made about this? Yeah, there's a documentary. I mean, I got quite a bit of information from it. I'll post it in the show notes. A few of the people that doctors and people that worked in unit 731 were actually, they gave, um, they told, they talked about what, what they did. So like I said, I'll put it in the um, show notes so that uh, you can go to that yourself. Um, And I believe there was a movie made ages ago. So their their admissions have helped unravel the events that took place at uh, Unit 731 and help give a voice to the victims. So it is in the context that I'm giving here that uh, we learned about the minds of these monsters and what led them to their horrific and deranged acts. Sometimes there is very little to be gleaned and we are left baffled. Other times there is a dirty window that we can peer through. You know what I mean? Sometimes there's just a crack and we get an idea and sometimes we can polish that dirty window and have a little idea of what's going on in their minds. Unit 731 was Dr. Hiro Ishii's deranged brainchild. It was an encampment. Actually, it was a huge complex that was part hospital, lab, torture chamber, prison, and barracks. And there were other such sites on a smaller scale, other satellite sites, but they were all under the umbrella of Unit 731. So Japan had been in conflict with Russia, and it was called the Japanese-Russo War. And they had been in combat with them for years because Japan wanted to take over Manchuria, which is in the far northeast of China. And it also is part of the furthest east part of Russia. And it was because there was trade you know japan is an island beside there and there were boat and trade routes and stuff like that and manchuria was just bursting with um, commerce and uh, they wanted to be a part of that they actually owned the railroad throughout manchuria for trade so the japanese did the japanese did sorry well the russians did for a little while and then they've had they had quite a few conflicts and then japan won um and just took over that land so of course the Chinese got into the middle of all of this. And well, it was in China, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, but it was <laughs> Yeah, but it was Russia and Japan fighting over that land. Okay. Because it was such a And when was this? This was back in the early nineteen hundreds. Like Oh, 19, okay. So this was like yeah. ongoing back and forth for a long time. So during this war, Japan was known for their excellence in terms of, well, everything. <laughs> And what they didn't know about stuff, you know, when you think of, I think of Japan, I think of technology and, you know, they've, they've made so many discoveries and breakthroughs and all levels, you know, could be medicine, it could be technology, it could be, you name it. So in that time, they were very well known for their medical uh, expertise to the fact that they, um, what they realized in war was that 
bullets killed a lot less people than disease did. In fact, they worked it out and it was seen that 80% of deaths were from disease, not from actually being shot. So their thing was, okay, well, if we can control the diseases, we will have more men to fight. And if the Russians are not able to control it so that they would just beat them by numbers because they would have healthy, healthy soldiers. So in discovering that or, or looking at that, they said, okay, well, we need to figure out how to fight this bacteria. So they acted on this problem with surgical precision and the numbers of, of deaths dropped dramatically. So they figured out how to fight the diseases. Japan had the most advanced and complex sanitation system. Every hospital in Japan and military base and field hospital had its own bacteriologist bacteriology lab. Okay. So right down, like hospital, field hospital and military bases had their own labs and they were able to sanitize the water from typhoid, dysentery and cholera. So right off the bat, they were able to. This was when? In the 1900s? Yeah. Yeah. Early 1900s. So they had these labs on in all these places, they would test the water and they would look at the bacteria and say, okay, that's what's in there. And then they would, they would, um, cleanse the water. So right off the bat, all their soldiers weren't getting these diseases or most of them weren't because they had clean water to, uh, yeah, it is huge. So even like, you know, cooking, you can't get rid of, or, you know, boiling, you can't get rid of some of these aggressive bacteria. And also think about this wounds. So if you had a soldier out there that gets a wound and this, you know, it gets infected, I mean, infected sepsis, gangrene, death. So they were able to like nip that in the bud, so to speak. And they used aseptic techniques. So when they were, um, like they were way ahead in terms of washing hands and using sterile technique and stuff like that. So they were advanced. So it wasn't just in their hospitals. They took this into battle. So, you know, that that's huge. So at that point, fighting deadly diseases was defensive. But then they were like, well, why can't we make this offensive? So if we can cure our soldiers from this, why can't we use those very same bugs to kill the uh, Russian soldiers or whoever their their enemy was? Their enemy was, yeah. Mm -hmm. Biological warfare. Yep. Well, that's exactly it. And this is where... This this is the the core of what happened. You know, of course, you you throw in, I mean, I'm talking about the human experiments, but you throw in the twisted, vindictive mind of uh, Ishii and, and the people that work there. A lot of this was an experimentation um, to learn. A lot of it was just vindictive, almost with uh, experiments with almost like a childlike curiosity. They just took shit and pushed it way beyond the, it being necessary. And, and you will see this. Well, they were doing it all in the glory of the emperor. Right? That is exactly it. That's And that's what this comes that's down to. Was, this, uh, this devotion. So one of the things that they um, did was they gave creosote to all their soldiers because it was a prophylactic way of fighting disease. So if they took these creosote pills, it would kind of absorb. It's creosote. Creosote is the same thing, like, you know, when you um, have a wood-burning stove and it builds inside the uh, the pipes that go outside. 
So it's, it's the result of burning off some things, but it's almost like a, a coal, like a, like a charcoal. So it will absorb stuff. Like an internal, like an internal Brita filter. <laughs> kind of. So these pills, they would ingest them and it would absorb bacteria before viruses before it could turn into something else. That's bizarre. But well, I mean, ingenious, I it, at, it at first it was used for people that had lung disease. Like real, not so much lung disease, but terrible lung infections, and it would help them. So, but this, these, these pills tasted awful, and the the soldiers just they wouldn't take it. They found them spit out or thrown out all over the place. So you know how they conquered that? On the pill boxes, it said, "Take this for the emperor. Show your solidarity." So they went from them all over the place to not seeing one. They were just like, okay. We honor the emperor. We're going to take these. So like that. Crazy devotion. So that gives a little bit of background on uh, Japan's superior way of fighting disease and how it came about. So unfortunately, the future fight for disease was being developed for biological warfare. And up to 12,000 men, women, and children were killed or became the victim of human experiments. So let's talk about the monster behind Ishii. And this gives you a bit of a background on him. Because of secrecy, you you don't necessarily learn a lot about, you know, the childhood and and background of uh, people from that time. Okay, so he was born on June uh, 25th, 1892, uh, in a village of uh, Chayota, which is about two hours from Tokyo. His family was considered wealthy by village standards. They were treated in high standing, and they were respected by the villagers, and they were very loyal to the family. In 1916, Ishii attended the prestigious Kyoto Imperial University School of Medicine. So it was like the best school to go to. And the hospital was respected for their work in bacteriology. So, you know, hospital, it just, all his stars aligned. Right. So he was not well-liked, surprise, surprised. Um, he was, he created problems for others. He was pushy and considerate and selfish and he would sacrifice anyone so he could climb the ladder. So understanding Japanese society, and of course I am no expert on this, but I try to understand, but yeah, from what I I've seen in, in nowadays and read about, there's a lot of respect. People aren't usually assholes to each other. They tr- try to respect each other. You know, in their culture, within their culture, I find that they're very um, amiable. Is that the right word? Amiable, amiable and respectful and um, in that type of thing. Again, I I could be. um, But there was probably also a very strong like, you know, classism. Yes, like a chaste. So he probably felt very entitled if he if it's a caste system, right? That's in India, but I but, just call it classism. Yeah, well, exactly. I just like say if, chaste. You, if you were just a farmer working on the farm, but you were the owner of the farm, you were higher up. Right? Oh, absolutely, and you were treated with the respect of that. There was so he he had that entitled. Oh yes, entitlement, right? right away. So he was already had this sense of entitlement, but um, like I said, he created problems for others. He was pushy and considerate and selfish, and he would sacrifice anyone so he could climb the ladder. He joined the military to advance his goals of medical research. He graduated in 1920 and enlisted in the army shortly after. He was a commissioned lieutenant by the end of the summer of 1922. He was then transferred to the first army hospital in Tokyo. And his supervisors were impressed by his ambitions. You know, if you can just imagine, he was very like, 
suck up no, yes exactly no he would he was an, a- an ass kisser and he, and he would just go right to you know whoever he felt he needed to go to and so i'm just I mean, gonna get was to he, i guess he obviously was very driven too right because he was because he was sick right like he was driven to his need to be a psycho it comes all together believe me all right so within a span of two years, he returned to the Kyoto Imperial University to do postgraduate work in bacteriology. Okay. So he became friendly with the school president, which pissed off his professors. Because you just don't jump over your professors and go straight for the, the president. Um, so they felt that he was socializing outside his station. So surprise, surprise, he ended up marrying the school president's daughter. Mm. And I'm sure it was not for love, but advancement in standing. He was now in control of the medical research, employees, students, and facilities. So this laid the foundation for the beginning of these horrible experiments in, uh, in China. So he pushed to establish a department that centered around weapons based on biology, so biological weapons. So if he was able to establish this, this would also raise him up in the ranks of importance because now he would be the head of, you know, biological warfare. So they would still continue to fight disease defensively, but they now wanted to go full out in biological warfare. So still protecting their, their, their people, but now it was like, okay, well, we've got a lot of this figured out. And in studying biological, the, the, these biological or, these these bacteria, the the viruses and stuff like that, they could also be uh, preemptive in treating their own people if it came to them. And also, if you're if you're blasting bacteria in an area, your soldiers may be close by, so you have to make sure that they are protected as well. So he convinced the minister of the army to fund this department. And the Ministry of the Army was impressed with Ishii's findings and ambitions and set the Japanese army into action along the lines that was mapped out by Ishii. So he saw it, he mapped it out right in front of him, he went for it and got everything he wanted. As I mentioned or discussed before about Manchuria, he wanted to move into this area so he could get as many supplies as possible. And continued to have full control of the rail system because that's how he was able to get all he needed back and forth. The South Manchuria Railway was run by the Japanese and it gave them a strong footing in the growing and prosperous area of China and Russia. Um, so, like I said, they took over it after the war. So then... After which war? The Japanese-Russo War. Oh, okay. Okay. So then uh, Japan attacked China on September 18th, 1931, and then took over the whole of Manchuria. So not only did they defeat Russia, they overran Manchuria. Because that's really just what they wanted, right? So now they, like I said, they have access to the town and anything they wanted from it. Why is this important? Because it set the stage for the construction of Unit 731, which would become a huge complex it was actually known as the fortress. So he continued to climb the ladder. And in 1932, he was put in charge of the Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory set up at an army hospital in Tokyo. So really, that's just, you know, um, <laughs> a, a very benign and important and sterile way of saying, we are 
setting up a laboratory for biological warfare, but we're saying it that it's actually called this. Do you know what I'm saying? So you could say... What was the name again? It was the... Um, of course, I can't find... Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory. Right. So it's, it's like saying the CDC, yeah. you know, was actually a place to... Like militarized. <laughs> yeah, but it also sounds very good to, for that it's doing yeah. good. Epidemic prevention. Yeah. Sure, they're doing good stuff. So there. it's like saying the CDC, you know, it's taking the CDC and turning it to a place where they would do human experiments. So it sounds very Center for Disease Control, but it's really like this is where we're going to take people and torture them and, and do human experiments. So that's how it was set up. So like I said, uh, Ishii wanted to turn bacteria into weapons, but he tried at first to turn them into gas weapons so put the bacteria into gas and spread it so animal research was not good enough because you can only take animal research so far it doesn't they may you mean like doing the experiments on animals yes right okay so you know you take uh, rats and oh, guinea pigs and you do the studies on them but they're not human and they wanted it to be absolutely precise to how a human was affected so they went to, that's it, we need people. But rats became very important at some point. Over 300,000 rats were used for something very sinister. So in 1933, a grant of land was given to build a research facility. And there is, so now they have the grant of land to build it. And it's sort of in that area. So I want to talk about a military branch called the Kentenpai. They are military police, but they were brutal and sadistic and very effective at uh, extracting confessions uh, whenever they saw an enemy of Japan. They were uh, the group that actually captured people for human experiments. So you can imagine that these guys are monsters. You, They have their eyes set on you. You're coming. So they were just great at like, yeah, you're coming with me. Like the Japanese version of the Gestapo or something? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. So they would just basically pluck people right off the street. You, 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 you come with me. And there was no escaping it. So these men were cho chosen exclusively for their sociopathic personality traits. Like they were put through tests. And basically, if you were a sociopath or show, show signs of it, it's like, yeah, you're perfect for this job. So they were given carte blanche on how they interrogated people. You want to or capture them. You want to torture them? Fine. You want to uh, kill them. That's good, too. So there was no, it was like, just get what you what you can, and if you can't get it, kill them. So Ishii focused on the Manchurian city of Harbin, and it was a railway hub. So you can see he's building all he needs along a rail line, which is brilliant and horrible. And Harbin is a, or it was, maybe it still is a um, very diverse racial and cultural mix because you had Russian people there, Chinese people, some Japanese. And so it was a great mix of, of people there, which brought out, it was known for its entertainment and its food and its culture. So they moved on in there and, um, and took it all, uh, over. He saw it as a great location to build a research center outside of Tokyo. So... The most important thing here is that he wanted to work in secrecy. He didn't want any eyes on this, even the other hospitals in uh, Japan. So Harbin would be a place that the army would get their human lab specimens. That's what they called them. They called them materials. 
And eventually, well, they called them Maruda. And I'll tell you how awful that is. They found a, a poor village that was about 100 kilometers away from Harbin. It was called Bayan. And it ran along the railway line as well. There were approximately 300 homes and shops there with a wide expanse of land around it. So the troops descended upon the town and the leader of the village was told that the townspeople had three days to get out or you die. And so then they, they moved in and took over. So there was one large building that was there that had about a hundred rooms. They moved in there completely and then torched the village like right to the ground. Those that were told to leave, they really had nowhere to go. So they said, you can help work on this, this building with us, this area. So it was, they were recruited or forced, in other words, uh, to help build. All told. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they received like wages that weren't even enough to feed them and their families. There was an area of 500 square meters that was designated as a restricted uh, military zone. The construction and building was happening at a really fast pace. And they even built an airport. They built a building with 700 rooms in a year. And there were two sections to the complex. One was, uh, contained offices, living quarters, dining areas, warehouses, and a parking lot. The other section contained prisons, laboratories, and a crematoria. And then a little part of that was a munition storage. A crematorium? Why would you need one of those? Oh, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> so strict secrecy was demanded by all involved. And like I said, anything that was leaked, you were done. So it was known as the Zonga Fortress because it looked like a castle. And it was... Zonga? Zonga. So one of the... Something. Well, it was, it was one of the char- you know, one of the characters, like one of their equivalent to our letters. Oh, okay. Looks, gotcha. it's called Zonga, uh, Zonga and, it, okay. and, and it looks like a fortress, like a, a castle fortress. So they called it after that letter. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So the, the area was entirely walled in with a three meter, with three meter high walls topped with barbed wire with high voltage wire also wrapped around. It had a two huge iron doors and a moat with a drawbridge. They were making this thing impossible to get into, but also impossible to get out of. It was also guarded 24 hours a day. All the supplies arrived easily by train. And after all the construction was finished, all the Chinese laborers were killed. What? Well, yeah, because... Oh, here, build this. Blood, sweat, and tears will pay you shit. And then we'll just kill you. Because there may be like that tiny chance that they might know something, so... Get rid of anybody that uh, might have, you know, had something to say. Oh my God. So then the prisoners were brought in by train, and ch- they were this. This is just it makes me sick. I think about the uh, the victims of the Holocaust that were loaded onto trains on cattle trains and like shoved in like sardines. And I don't mean to say this disrespectfully, but I mean they literally were. So these prisoners were shackled at the hands and feet lied and, and like they had to lie down on the floors of a train car and it was pitch black inside and they actually painted these cars black and blacked out the windows and they had to lie down like literally like sardines and packed them and they couldn't move so can you imagine being captured shackled by your hands feet told to get into this this car and then you're just lying down there and don't know where you're going. 
you don't know what's going to happen to you. Especially knowing how Japan was in terms of a military power. Why are human beings so vile? I don't know. They were then taken into cells and they still had to be bound. They were still shackled by hands and, and feet in these cells. I mean, why? I don't know why they needed it. Um, and here, here's the thing where I think it's kind of twisted for many reasons. You'll understand why in a second. So they were well fed. They were even given like alcohol to drink from time to time. So why do you think they did that? So these people were captured, brought in, shackled, and left in their cells. Oh, and to talk about the cells a little bit more, the only window in the sh- cell was a little, like, sort of trap door at the bottom. Like a little flap that would open. Oh, when they put the food in and stuff like that? Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, well, you're saying, oh, I get it. So they would want them to be healthy because they're lab rats. And if they're healthy... That mimics the health of the the soldiers or any any person. So they don't want them already malnourished or anything Weakened like that. Or anything, yeah. So here you come in and now you're fed all this food. So I mean, the just the cruelty of that. So that they basically can fatten you up for an experiment that's for experiments that were like some of the worst shit I've ever heard. I don't know. It's like just on so many levels, like it just layer after layer after layer of sick, twisted cruelty. And yeah. So like, so like you said, they wanted to test them while they were in a state of health, similar to the military personnel or their enemy or the victims of biological warfare. Exactly. All right. So this is when it starts to get, uh, we start to get into the experiments. One of the tests was to draw 500 mils of blood daily. So when we give blood, we give, I think it's like 435 mils. Like a cup. Yeah, just under a cup is what we give. And your body can replace that in two to uh, one to two days. And we have anywhere from four to five liters in our body, depending on the size, as adults. Okay, so if you have five liters and there's... So like a grown man... That's like like, 5,000 milliliters. Yeah. So if you're a grown man, say six feet tall, 200 pounds, you'd have five liters. If you're like us, we'd have maybe four, four and a half. Okay, so they were drawing this every day. Well, you'd be out of blood. <laughs> well, yes. So they were drawing 500 ten, mils. Ten days or so. Well. Depending on how quickly your body replaced Yeah. It. And um, so they became progressively debilitated and wasted. Yeah, blood is kind of important. Yeah. And they would draw it to see how long a person can last. You know, down like how long you can last with taking that amount out every day. And that's part of the reason why the flap door flap was on the the window was on the bottom, because they would get so weak that they had to they would lie there and put their arm out, and they would take the blood that way because they couldn't stand. So they just grab their arm. So part of um, too weak to even do it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. So part of the reason that, that, that window flap was on the floor is because that's how they drew blood from anybody because they wouldn't enter the cell. And so the arm, an arm was put out and they would either inject them with a disease or they would. Oh, I see. You mean the, so can you Jap- imagine Japanese wouldn't go in the cell? No, no, no. Yeah. So can you imagine? I, mean, uh, I wouldn't want to go in the cell. They'd probably have to shove me in. But you know. Yeah. So you're lying. Well, you would just be shot in the head. Like that would be. That's it. You right. know, you're you're pain and you you're not worth it. So or they would just dissect you afterwards and see what they could find out. Then they would burn the bodies. 
after they used them up. And they said the bodies would burn really quick because all their organs were taken out. Like, so messed up. So can you imagine you're in this dark cell, you're told to lie down and stick your arm out, and they don't know what they're going to do. You don't know what they're going to do to you. Right? But they, this is where I talk about how they, they did this with, like, almost like childlike curiosity because it was like, <laughs> you know, let's just see how far we can take it. Because it was, in one sense, I guess in a twisted way they could do their experiments, but in another way, they just wanted to push it as far as they could push it. I kind of think any normally sane, mm, compassionate individual or knowledgeable individual would know that if you took 500 milliliters of blood out of a person each day, that they're probably not going to last very long. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And the victims that they didn't want to follow through, they were just like, oh, okay, well, we're done with you. They would do things like poison them. So, uh, you know what? You're not dying fast enough. Ah, uh, we don't feel like doing this anymore. Uh, but you're not really useful anymore because you're weak and debilitated. So let's poison you and see what happens. And then they would die. And they would study that. Okay. And so that would happen. And others would be killed with a blow to the head with an axe. And then their brains scooped out literally and taken to the area to be studied. So that, that was it. Done. The life expectancy for the prison victims was no more than a month. Another experiment was to see how long a person could live only on water. They were observed as they wasted away and died. In 1936, 40 prisoners... It's horrible. Just all of it's them to death? Yeah. yeah. Um, in 1936, 40 prisoners attempted an escape. But out of the 40, only like two or three made it out. But they told people what was going on there. Okay. So they were able to keep this first unit 731 a secret for five years. So now, no, they, they had to uh, basically torch it and bring it to the ground. So they took out everything they needed, shipped it off to their next location and burned everything down, including all the papers, you name it. And anybody that was there was just shot in the head and burned down with it. So moving forward, they moved on to an area called uh, Ping Fang, which was about uh, half an hour closer to Harbin. And they built this even bigger complex. This was like oh, 10 times the size, five times the size. And they built this massive complex between 1936 to 1938. So the Japanese took over the village of Pingfang. So I'm going to refer to uh, this, this complex as Pingfang because they basically wiped out the town. And uh, yeah. So they took over the village. Hundreds of families were forced to sell their homes for tiny sums, like just nothing. Just like what happened to Jewish people um, in, in Germany, France, all, all over Europe, right? Right. Businesses and homes taken Everything, out. yeah. Sold off. Mm-hmm. The Pingfang complex would be continuously built upon up until the moment that they had to tear it down. So they were just going to keep going and going and going. So it became a walled-in city. Check this out. It was on six square kilometers of land. That's how big this place was. And it had more than 70 buildings. 
so this was a city within a city and it was still and it had the exact same you know walls and barbed wire and moat and all that kind of stuff can you imagine what that would look like so they basically built the city of human torture Mm -hmm. and this wasn't 100 200 300 well i guess it was 100 years ago (laughs) but i'm saying like it wasn't like medieval times we're talking just over 100 years ago or just under 100 years ago. Yeah, no, what did you say, 1936? Uh, 1939, no, 36 and then 39, they started to, like, this ran for another, like, wait, right until past World War II ended. So the airspace over top of the land was off limits, and any aircraft that flew was shot down. And the building was finished for use in approximately 1939. So... The prison blocks were called row buildings because another character, like a letter in their writing, looks like this this character row. So they called them row buildings. So block seven held adult male prisoners and block eight held women and children. And the cells were either had single or multiple prisoners inside. And the cells were side by side with the little flap. So they couldn't even like see each other by lying down looking through the flaps. And the walls were really thick the floors were wooden and they had flush toilets inside to keep them as clean as possible it's basically like keeping a cage clean it's oh that's horrific thought i know and i hate saying these things but i mean it was just that's what it kind of was the cells were also temperature regulated so if they were you know too hot they had air basically air conditioning too cold they had heat I don't know what's worse, like having them like be in a cell that they get well fed, they're they're comfortable, so to speak, or to be I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It just it seems so twisted to me, especially the reasons why they were doing it. I mean, it's twisted, obviously, but even more so for all the reasons why they were doing it. So again, they did it so that their the data they produced was valid. So the local people, this is where the name Maruta comes in. It just makes me feel sick. So some of the local people asked what the complex was for, which is like pretty cheeky considering like who they were asking, right? Like, I don't know, they were lucky they survived asking it. And they were told that it was a lumber mill. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So the people started calling the prisoners Maruda, which means this Japanese word for logs. So from that point on, the people, the prisoners were called Maruda. They were just logs. And it's just all about dehumanizing people, right? So, uh, yeah. And this Ping Fang uh, complex had three large incinerators for bodies. We can't even call them crematorium, crematoria because they were they were incinerators. They were just left so there were no traces of any humanity. So there were new types of tests that they were doing. At, at this laboratory that were way worse than what was going on at the, the first one. So they started to perform vivisections on people. So a vivisection is performing operations on living humans for the purpose of experimentation or scientific research. So there's one thing to have needing your appendix out, being not put out, having it removed, your your sewn back up, it's done in as clean way as possible, and then you wake up and then you heal. Not with this case. They were just cut open. With no, with no anesthetic? Just operating them with no anesthetic? Sometimes they gave them anesthetic. 
but a lot of times they'd wake up in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. A lot of times the anesthetic was just a pain in the ass for them. So a good majority of the operations were done while they were wide awake. That's horrible. So that's one of the, yeah. Unspeakable. It is unspeakable. So one of the unnamed scientists that came forward, this is a quote from them. The results of the effects of the infections cannot be obtained accurately once the person dies because of uh, putrefactive bacteria that sets in. Putrefactive bacteria are stronger than plague germs. So for obtaining accurate results, it's important that the subject matter is alive. The subject matter. Is alive. So what they were doing was, okay, we're going to give you cholera. And we want to look what the bowels look like of a living person with cholera. We can't do this after they die. So they would cut them open, pull the bowel out, look at it, and sometimes put it back in and sew them back up. So they would sometimes remove the organs of a living person, examine them, like I said, and put them back in their bodies. The doctors would infect the victims and examine their effects on the organs at the first stages of the disease. So they wanted to see, okay, what does it look like early on, midway at the end? Here's another quote from a former unit member. Quote, as soon as the symptoms were observed, the prisoner was taken from his cell and into a dissection room. He, she was stripped and placed on the table, screaming, trying to fight back. He was strapped down, still screaming frightfully. One of the doctors stuffed a towel in his mouth, and then with one quick slice of the scalpel, he was opened up. Even with the intestines and organs exposed, a person does not die immediately. The same physical situation when a person is operated alive under anesthetic. You cut the person open, you find the diseased area, you fix it, prove it, whatever, sew them back up to heal. Not the case with these guys. It was awful. That's, it's just... You ever cut yourself? I mean, dumb question, but you know how much it hurts. You imagine? From like sternum to pelvis? I can't. Would you pass out from pain and shock? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Some would, some wouldn't. Like, it depends. Like, it's... Some witnesses of the vivisections reported that the victim would usually let out a horrible scream when the cut was made and that their voice stopped soon after that. So maybe it was shock, maybe it was death. But I I just, it, it honestly makes me feel physically ill to think about that. It's unspeakable. I've had abdominal surgery, and I know how bad it feels after. I can't even imagine being awake. Okay, uh, so the researchers then conduct uh, the examination of the organ, remove the ones that they want to study, and discard what's left of the body. At some point, the victim dies through loss of blood or from the removal of vital organs. But they didn't die right away. So there is a video testimony by one of the the unit members. His name was Kira Muzama Masakuni. And I think um, he's in one of the documentaries. He described an open vivisection of a woman who had wakened from the anesthesia midway through what they were doing. He said that uh, she opened her eyes and screamed and cried out, it's all right, kill me, but please spare my child's life. And they never spared the child's life. The child was also, children were also. But wait, she was pregnant? No, no. She had a child oh, there okay, in, okay. in there with her. And she's like, just kill me. I don't care. But just spare my child. But the children also went through the exact same experiments. But, uh, so uh, women were captured in an experiment. I, I just don't even have 
I don't even have words for that. Like, how do you do that to another human being? I don't but, know. You know, let alone a child. Like, how do you do that to a child? We're actually going to talk about that because I actually I just don't. There's a whole um, area where I'm going to talk where I was able to find um, information from actual people that work there. And some of them explain how they were able to do it. So we will we will get to that. But, but. I don't know how no, of course, is capable of that kind exactly. of cruelty or Well, a lot of these people that worked there were started working there when they were 13, 14 years old. They would get them in young and this would just completely fuck up their minds. But we we will get to that. Speaking further about the women that were captured, part of the experiments that they did on them was um forced sex acts. What? For transmitting venereal disease and these children were born in captivity so to speak and then those children were experimented on so they would take a man infect him with venereal disease and force him to rape her to infect her and then they wanted to see how long it took and the process of it took she would become pregnant and then they would study the babies and the men and women. Sometimes if the soldiers had venereal disease, which was very common, they would rape the women. One of the experiments uh, was to take a mother and a child and put them in like a glass box-like structure. And it was airtight except for a small hole where they would drop in pathogens and gas and watch them as they suffered and died in these like, you know, glass box so they could see everything that was going on. Okay. So, but well, we're going to give a break on some of these experiments uh, now. Yeah. I think I need a break. From yeah. That. But they're just coming up. Unspeakable atrocity. Coming up. There's way worse ones. Like this is a drop in the bucket. Moving forward. Ishii would make trips to Ping Fang, collect the materials as he would call them, which were the people, you know, human experiments and present them at Tokyo's uh, Military Medical College. The materials would include graphs and drawings. Okay. Also, human specimens preserved in jars. Extremities, arms, legs, feet, and organs, and heads. And sometimes entire bodies. There was a steady flow of human specimens that were sent by train or plane from Pingyang to Tokyo. And it wasn't just the medical school there. They were sharing these across the country. So you think people, you think the, the doctors would be like, where did you get this, in, this whole body that was in fact, and you can show me, where did you get this arm, this leg, this, no question there, right? Like, <laughs> okay, this is interesting. Let's learn from this. And so the human materials would go, from Pingyang to Tokyo and then spread out around the country to medical schools. And then up to 300,000 rats, cage rats and supplies over that period of time were sent back to Pingyang. And you're going to find out why they had so many rats. So it wasn't for what we think it would be. Experimenting on? Yeah, they were experimenting on them for a different reason. You'll see. So the results of these experiments were that they were developing new bacteria and the human specimens had died of artificially induced pathological conditions. 
Many of the diseases that they were uh, discovering, they were getting from other areas of the world, like China and Russia and then maybe some European countries, because they had not occurred or shown up in Japan, but they wanted to study these so that, for obvious reasons, so they could protect their own and they can use it in biological warfare. And some of those were the plague, cholera, and this one, anything to do with this kind of... Plague is like bubonic plague? Yeah, like, yeah. A pneumonic. So the the other one was the epidemic hemorrhagic fever. That just, anything that's got to do with hemorrhagic, mm. where you bleed out, that just, to me, is the most horrible thing, like Ebola. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. you get a fever. That scares the shit out of me. And then you bleed internally. So this is basically what the kind of diseases they were studying. So next episode, I'm going to talk about the satellite facilities. Oh, great. Yeah. So, so more of them. Yeah, they were set up around Korea, Singapore, um, uh, other places in China. And they were doing, each place was sort of more um, specialized in an area. So just to give a heads up, one of them was to freeze limbs solid for frostbite. And they were so, they knew that they were frozen solid because they would take a cane and whack the arm or leg. And if it made like a sound, they knew it was frozen. Then they would figure out how to thaw it. Sometimes it was boiling water. Sometimes it was over a fire. So we're going to... Frostbite, you have to warm it up slowly. (sighs) Well, when it's frozen solid like that, you know. They, again, so we're going to, that's just one thing out of many that we're going to talk about in the next uh, bit. And the worst of it all, when it was all said and done, is that the Americans benefited from all of this. Okay, there you have it. First episode of Unit 731. It's one of the worst, most deranged atrocities to humans that I have ever read about, researched, and put out on the podcast. Episode two will be coming out on April the 19th, and then we will be getting back to our regular scheduled programming. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you all uh, for supporting me on Patreon and being in the Facebook group and for your patience and understanding. Remember to take care of yourselves, take care of each other, to love each other, and most importantly, to love yourself. Peace. One love.